1: Okay, now it's my pleasure to introduce our speakers for today. Um, we're, they're going to be talking about issues of immigration law. Borderlines is an immigration law and policy podcast by Vancouver lawyers Stephen Murrens, Peter Ellemann, and the person who's not here today is Deanna Okanekoff. So please join me in welcoming Peter and uh, Stephen. Thank you.
2: Hi there. Thanks, everyone, for having uh, me and Peter today. Um, we're both Canadian immigration lawyers practicing in Vancouver. We're at separate firms, but uh, as was mentioned, we started a podcast about a year and a half ago. Uh, it's basically geared towards discussing current issues in immigration policy. We frequently would talk on the phone criticizing or just discussing in general different aspects of immigration law, and we decided to turn it into a podcast. Uh, my name's Steve, I practice predominantly a mix of corporate immigration, which is helping companies bring in foreign workers and then transitioning those workers to permanent residents, as well as a litigation practice helping with appeals. Peter, I think he would describe as a mix of complex refugee files as well as he also practices extradition and criminal law. Is there anything you'd add to your background? No? So what I think we're gonna discuss today before, we're gonna do a brief presentation and then open the floor to questions. Between the two of us, I think we can speak to pretty much any issue in Canadian immigration. I'm gonna provide a brief overview of what, for the purpose of today, we're gonna call the Planned immigration. So every year, the government sets out how many immigrants they plan on welcoming in a different year and in what programs. And I'm going to provide an overview briefly of those programs. And then Peter's going to speak to the unplanned immigration, specifically with a focus on what's going on on the Canada US border right now in light of the recent dramatic increase in refugee numbers, the Safe Third Country Agreement and uh, issues, I guess, in providing services out East and different, just an overview of how the government is trying to respond to unplanned immigration, which isn't a legal term, it's just a term that I'm using for today's presentation. And I guess on that, I'll begin with just an overview of uh, the planned immigration for 2018. The government on its website uh, sets out immigration levels plans. They're switching to a five-year plan, but on their website right now they have it in three years. And what I find interesting, and maybe to just set the stage for today, is that there was a news story about a week ago that federal bureaucrats had discovered that Canadians generally support Canada's immigration levels, but they also think that it's half of what it actually is. So hopefully in today, we can both provide a context of the overall numbers and also a breakdown of who the people are because uh, that does form a pretty important aspect of understanding Canada's immigration system beyond just a total number of people. So the first broad category of immigration or immigrants to Canada, and it's the largest category, is economic immigrants. These are immigrants who are invited or I guess have their applications approved based on their ability to economically establish themselves in Canada, and the total number. So the total number of immigrants that Canada is targeting in 2018 is 310,000 people, which sounds big, but it's pretty gradual increase. It's actually not that big a jump from what it was under the Conservatives. I think under the Conservatives last year it was the target of 280, around there, and now it's about 310. And of the 310,000, the current government in 2018 is targeting that 177,500 of them will be economic immigrants. So the economic immigrant category is broken down into several substreams and the largest of about 75,000 is a program you may have read about in the news called Express Entry. And what Canada has, and I think it started in Canada and now is The basis of immigration systems in the United States, not the United States, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, and Canada, and they borrow from each other. And interestingly enough, uh, Donald Trump did propose legislation that would create an economic immigration regime similar to what Canada has. And under the economic immigration programs, immigrants are all ranked against each other. So anyone looking to immigrate through one of the main federal economic immigration programs has to create an online profile and answer questions about themselves. They have to go through standardized language testing that is offered around the world, not just for Canadian immigration, but for post-secondary education, institutes that are done in English or French, um, British immigration as well. They're ranked according to their education, whether they have a job offer in Canada, whether they've worked before in Canada as a foreign worker, um, their age, relatives, that sort of thing. The top, I think it's, and so every two weeks, the government, they'll get a points ranking system, where they'll get a points ranking out of 1,200, and every week to two weeks, the government will announce the minimum threshold level, by which if people score above that number of points, they can be invited to apply. So it really is the case that, at least for people who are entering the pool in the economic immigration program, Canada is selecting, based on their ranking system, what they consider to be the cream of the crop uh, in terms of people's ability to establish themselves economically in Canada. And the programs, I think the statistics have shown that the people entering under these programs actually fare better economically in Canada than the average Canadian. And then there's smaller economic programs. There's about a thousand people that will be invited specifically to settle in Atlantic Canada. About it's a decreasing number, going from twenty about seventeen thousand in 2018 to five thousand starting in 2020 of caregivers. These are uh, caregivers are people who are in who work uh, providing care in a house either to people with high medical needs. Or children for two years before they're eligible to apply for permanent residence. There's the federal business immigration stream, which the previous government really gutted the numbers. Um, I think it went when they started, it was around 3,000 people a year, and now it's down to about 700 in the business programs. You may have read about the program as the Federal Investor Program, which no longer exists and the business immigrants comprise generally of, at this point, either self-employed artists or uh, people in film and other cultural industries as well as people who've been selected by venture capital funds to start businesses in Canada. Finally, all the provinces between uh, Quebec and the other provinces get to nominate about 100,000 people to immigrate a year. All of the provinces have their own category Quebec, um, and it somewhat famously in this province at least because it's generated a bit of media coverage, has its own investor category whereby about 2,500 people can immigrate to Canada if they make a loan to the Quebec government of about 800,000. And then after five years, they get the 800,000 back. And it's a controversial program. I hear some laughter about it. And we can speak to it in more detail later. Uh, if asked, so those are the uh, economic programs. There's another 86,000 that's family reunification, spouses, uh, people who've married people from abroad, people who have um, adopted children from abroad, people who are sponsoring their overseas parents and grandparents. Um, and then there is finally the humanitarian class, which uh, I'll speak briefly to just the kind of the, the plan numbers that the government has, and then. I'll hand it over to Peter to speak to uh, what's unplanned this year. And so you have every year, the government, based on historic trends, has planned for about, in this year, 16,000 people entering Canada and claiming asylum. And I'll leave it to Peter, actually, to discuss what the grounds for claiming asylum are. Um, And obviously, this year, that number has been blown out of the water. They also plan on resettling about... 7500 through the government and another 19000 through people privately sponsoring refugees from abroad for a total intake of about well planned 43000 um 43000 in what is the refugee and protected persons program finally there's a small number about 4000 for people who don't really fit into any other immigration program called uh, just the humanitarian and compassionate applications people who are maybe here long-term without status uh, due to circumstances maybe beyond their control and there's just no program that they're eligible, but the government determines that there are humanitarian and compassionate grounds that justify them, uh, their ability to stay in Canada on a permanent basis. So with that in mind and that overall presentation of the number and the government's goal for how it would be broken down, I'll pass it off to Peter to discuss the refugee, for lack of better words, situation uh, unfolding basically since uh, President Trump's election in 2016.
3: Okay, Uh, thanks, Steve. So, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll... just give a basic overview to start with about uh, refugee, the refugee context, because I think it's important to understand what the context looks like globally uh, and, and where Canada fits in. So there's about 60 million uh, refugees, people who are outside their countries of origin and and or internally displaced people. And when we talk about refugee law internationally, the, the convention, so the refugee convention will be the main document that, uh, that people are referring to when they're talking about convention refugees uh, and the international obligations to take refugees in. Somebody who's displaced within their country and hasn't made it out of their country in in international law, is not yet a refugee. So you don't you don't get to even be a refugee unless you make it out of your country. So if you're stuck in Aleppo, regardless of how much danger you're in in Syria, uh, until you make it to Lebanon or to uh, a, a neighbor in Jordan or out of Syria, you're not technically a refugee in international law. Uh, but in terms of inter- so we talk about internally displaced people and refugees. So we're ta- globally we're talking about 60 million. More or less, right now, uh, depending on how you count those people and who's doing the counting. Uh, when we talk about the numbers coming into Canada, and, and we're going to talk about numbers in the uh, a low of say twenty thousand that were coming in at, at certain points over the past ten years, uh, and in the highs where you know you might get into the sixty. Uh, or more thousand coming in per year in Canada, um, those are very, very small numbers on a global level. So you talk about 50,000 people coming in, and those are the estimates given our, our... Uh, Our current numbers that came in so far this year, that we might be on track for having 50,000 people uh, come into Canada just to make refugee claims. Countries like Bangladesh, Lebanon, Kenya, uh, the the countries that are in or near conflict zones, can see 50,000 refugees come in in a day. So we're talking about, when you look at the numbers in the countries that are near conflict zones and the countries that are taking in the largest numbers of refugees. They're countries like Bangladesh, Pakistan, Iran, Kenya, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, and they count refugees in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. So, that's just to put some context, on a geographical level, we're very protected. Uh, and and when I say protected is that that's very much the attitude of the government. Uh, We spend a lot of money making sure that people never get on the planes or never get on the boats. Uh, We have very developed policies of interdiction, Uh, and interdiction is essentially a process by which we push our borders out because in international law, you don't need to. We don't have an international obligation to let people come to Canada to make a refugee claim. Our international obligations kick in once they step onto Canadian territory, and so we do a lot of work to make sure that they never make it to Canadian territory. And when I say a lot of work, we actively have officers overseas uh, who work with the airlines. We fine airlines if they bring refugee. If you bring somebody here who makes a refugee claim, the airline gets fined. The, there's a, a whole process of screening people to make sure that they don't get visas or electronic, ath- uh, electronic travel authorizations to be able to get on the planes. So when we're talking about the numbers that are coming in, there's a, a great deal of effort that goes into controlling the people who come in, in from other directions. So in terms of marine arrivals or air travel, it's very challenging uh, for a refugee to even make it here. And so there's that, that level of triage that happens, which gives some context for what's happening at the southern border, because that's the other place is that that's the only overland route into Canada for somebody who's a refugee claimant would be uh, through the United States. And that dynamic has changed in the last little while. And I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, as we go along. So in terms of the refugee programs that we have, Canada has essentially three refugee programs. So we have the government-assisted refugees. Uh, Government-assisted refugees are generally uh, people who are identified by the uh, United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Uh, Canada will agree to take certain numbers for different reasons. So there's a whole discussion that happens amongst uh, receiving countries about who will take the, the people out of the refugee camps. So you have uh, countries uh, like Kenya or uh, Bangladesh who are vastly over, their resources are vastly overwhelmed. You have people who've been in the camps in some places for generations, where you, you have people who've been there for uh, 10 or 20 years. Uh, they were born in, their cam- in the camps. Uh, the kids were born in the camps, depending on the profile of people that you're dealing with. Uh, so some of them are more recent um, phenomena, the C- Syria, the Rohingya coming out of uh, Myanmar are more recent phenomena. But you'll deal with, uh, for example, when you're talking about Tibetan refugees, uh, the, the si- their situation in India is um, complicated. And so what you'll see in terms of uh, the same thing with Afghan refugees in Pakistan or in, in Iran, like sometimes they've been there for a really long time, depending on when they fled Afghanistan. So what will happen with government-assisted refugees is Canada will agree to take, say, 3,000 Burmese refugees, and then there will be a plan for settlement. They'll settle them in a specific place. In this case, there, there was a settlement in Burnaby and Port Coquitlam. Uh, the, there was, uh, the, the entire process is planned out in advance, that there's uh, there's housing, there's resources, there's tra- interpreters, the, the, all the things that you need to integrate, and you know what the profile of the population that's coming in is. So you know what whether it, you're talking about families with children, or uh, in other cases, you might be dealing with significant numbers just of, of single men whose, uh, whose families might still be overseas. That happened, for example, with the Achenes. We, we settled a, a group of people from Aceh province in Indonesia uh, in the early 2000s. And those were primarily men who were settling and then were reuniting with their families after the fact. Uh, so depending on the profile of the people who are coming in, they'll be settled uh, and there'll be a plan for settlement. Uh, so those, just to give you an idea of those uh, target numbers for this year, um, what the government assisted refugees, uh, they're targeting at around 7,500 is the 2018 target. That's going to uh, go up a little bit to about 10,000. Um, a big chunk, when you talk about the the Syrian refugees that were very um, prominent during the election. There was a talk about 25,000. That was a mix of government-assisted refugees and what I'm going to talk about uh, right now, which is privately sponsored refugees. So private sponsorship of refugees is something that is relatively unique to Canada, although a number of other countries are considering it because it's an extremely successful program. And almost, a, I think it's between a quarter, I think almost a quarter of Canadians have been involved in one way or another with private sponsorship of refugees. Uh, and in fact, when I was, I remember when I was a, uh a, Child in um, uh, w- growing up in Ontario, that uh, my parents' church was involved with uh, Vietnamese, uh, the resettlement of Vietnamese refugees, and we were we worked with a Vietnamese family, and we got to know the kids, and that was uh, part of the. And so this the private settlement, um, the private sponsorship of refugees is either done by uh, NGOs. Uh, a lot of them are either religious, uh, some their church groups, their mosques, they are other types of non-governmental organizations that work with refugees, or any group of five Canadians uh, or permanent residents can get together and sponsor a refugee. So it's what we talk about a group of five sponsorships. So any five people can get together. And what you do is that you come up with a plan for how the person, first of all, establishing the person is a refugee, which is usually done by the United Nations uh, High Commission for Refugees. So we're generally dealing with people who've already been recognized by the UN as being refugees. Uh, and then integrating them, what the plan is for their housing and their employment and whether you have the resources to be able to support them uh, for integration here. And in terms of global resettlement of refugees, the private sponsorships are by far and away the most successful integrations. And in large part, not because of the money. What the government has in terms of government-assisted refugees is money. What private sponsors have, which is Much, much more valuable in terms of integration is social, what's colloquially referred to or generally referred to as social capital. In other words, the ability to. Put people in contact with someone who can get you into a school, or get you a job, or help you to understand how to use the bus, or how to get a bank account. Actually, take you into the into the bank and say, no, you need to give this person a bank account, and this is why. So those are the the kinds of challenges that people have in integration. And so a good chunk of the uh, the refugees and the the numbers with respect to privately sponsored refugees uh, are significantly higher. So they're about uh, I think we're looking at eighteen thousand. Uh, as a target number for this year and then 20,000 uh, as a target number by 2020. So they're, they're, they're kind of looking outwards. And so that would be uh, almost, and, and that's out of a total of 48. So they're, they're looking at about half, at least in the target numbers, would be privately sponsored refugees. Now the other group, uh, and this is the group that's more controversial in the news, are the refugee claimants. So this has to do with Canada's international obligations, and that is, uh, and with respect to our own uh, um, constitutional, the the way that our constitution has been interpreted, uh, is that we don't send once people are in Canada, uh, we don't send them back to be tortured and killed in their countries. Uh, we won't necessarily take them in if they're going to be tortured and killed, and they're still outside of Canada. Uh, but once they get here, uh, our laws and and our uh, the way that the the convention uh, functions is that we won't send them back uh, if they're going to face persecution uh, or uh, a risk to the to their life uh, or or security of the person if they were going to be sent back to their country. Um, now those numbers are much less. Um, what I say controlled because anybody who makes it onto Canadian soil can make a refugee claim with one important exemption and this has to do with what's the, with the safe third country agreement that we have with the United States and the way that safe third Con- the safe third country agreement was part of uh, an, an agreement between Canada and this was during the Bush uh, Bush two years so, so uh, in post 9/11 uh, we sign an agreement with the United States that allows us to send refugees back to the United States if they come to make claims in Canada. But there are some important restrictions on that. And those restrictions were set by the United States. So Canada would be happy to send back Ever would would in terms of the negotiation, the challenge was in getting the United States to take refugees back because most countries do not want to be in a in a position where they have to take refugees back, uh in uh just given the global situation, and so there was a trade off. It it had to do with uh, with the security of North America as a whole. But essentially, how that trade off played out was that Canada can send back refugees who come to a designated port of entry that is a land border with the United States. And if you come to a a designated port of entry and make a refugee claim, unless you fit into a series of exemptions, so for example, you have a family member who has status in Canada, uh, you're an unaccompanied minor, uh, there's a few other exemptions, those are the the major ones, uh, that you cannot make a claim at a designated port of entry. However, if you come in at, uh, if you come into Canada in some other way, in other words, you come in by, wa- by uh, a marine, as a marine arrival, you come in by air, or if you just walk across even right next to the port of entry. Uh, and this is why at the Peace Arch, for example, if you show up at the, at the port of entry, you cannot make a claim arriving unless you fall into the exemptions. If you walk across the park, and they arrest you in the park. You can make a refugee claim, and so it creates a bit of an absurd and dangerous situation in a large in, in many parts of the country. So at the Peace Arch, it doesn't make that much of a difference in terms of safety because the park isn't. It, it, as long as people have gotten good advice, like. When I say good advice, it's actually very challenging for those of us, for lawyers, for example, to be giving that. I can't give advice to somebody to say, well, just walk across the park and everything will be fine. But in terms of how communities are getting information um, is, uh, in some cases, is quite unfortunate because their understanding is that they have to completely avoid the ports of entry or they have to come. uh, And this is where you see crossings in the middle of the winter in Manitoba where people are putting their lives at risk or putting their children's lives at risk uh, because of their understanding of the Safe Third Country Agreement, which is complicated even for those of us who work in the area. I mean, it's not that complicated in the sense that just don't show up at a port of entry and you can make a refugee claim, as absurd as that is. Canada could suspend that agreement at any time. And in fact, if someone just explained to Mr. Trump how that agreement works and what that agreement does, I expect it would be suspended uh, after one session f- on uh, Fox and Friends, but that's another, uh, that's that's maybe another, uh, I've considered a call to Fox and Friends uh, in, in terms of my, uh, in terms of addressing some of these concerns uh, where we see people crossing in dangerous ways at the border. So that's where, in terms of the numbers that we'll see from the United States and the people who are coming up, they're making claims here in, for a number of different reasons. One is because of the climate in the United States, and for obvious reasons, there's a very anti-refugee and anti-immigrant uh, climate within certain portions of the administration and the and the political environment in the United States, but also because of complications within the U.S. immigration system and refugee system. Uh, there are limitations on whether people can make claims after they've been in the U.S. for more than a year, uh, which on its face doesn't seem like it's, well, why wouldn't you make a claim in the first year? Well, if you got to the United States in 2009 and you're Syrian, you probably didn't have a problem going back to Syria until things started to fall apart in 2011. So if you were in in the United States as a student or had other status in the United States, uh, you, you may find yourself ineligible to make a refugee claim uh, even though things have deteriorated in your country. Uh, in other situations, there may be different reasons why people uh, have been in the United States for significant periods of time or that they have uh, issues in their home country or were unsuccessful with claims in the United States because of the way that the United States interprets. The the um, the convention uh, and their obligations. They have a very strict interpretation of the convention that certain people to whom we would give protection uh, would not get protection in the United States. To give you an example, I had a, a Salvadorian police officer as a client a few years ago. He went through the refugee process in the United States, and he, was, he had put a number, I think, something in in the range of two hundred gang members in uh, in prison over the course of his career as a police officer in El Salvador. And he was being hunted by the the gangs in El Salvador. He was told by his police chief, We can no longer protect you. Run away. And he left. They had bombed his house. they had shot up his car. The, and he was he, he made a claim in the United States. He was found to be credible. He, and the judge in the United States said, I believe you're at risk if you go back to El Salvador, but you don't fit the nexus of a convention. You don't, you're not connected to a convention ground because being a police officer is not akin to a race, religion, nationality, uh, membership in a particular social group, for example, like sexual orientation or gender. So you don't qualify. And so they very clearly said, yeah, we think you're probably going to be killed if you go back, but we're not going to protect you. Uh, Canada doesn't do that, so we have some other, uh, um, uh, unless with some very, we can talk about the the restrictions, but there are sections that are broader in terms of Canadian law. And so those are some of the things that you'll see in terms of the profiles of people who are coming up uh, or who might show up and make claims at the border. So... um, I wasn't going to do an hour on refugee law, but I thought it was important to give some context uh, in terms of of why these things are happening and what these numbers look like. Uh, The numbers this year... I think right now, in terms of the first three months this year, we had about eleven between eleven and twelve thousand claims at the border. Uh, That is a significant; uh, it it is an increase, uh, but it's not at uh, crisis levels. Or uh, we're talking about approximately fifty thousand claims over the year, and it depends on what it is you're comparing it to. If you compare it to the low point uh, when right after the refugee reform. uh, which was very much billed as an anti- as as meant to prevent refugee claims. We saw a dip down to twenty thousand uh, during the conservative uh, government. That those numbers were going to go up anyways. It's always just a question when you make these changes to refugee law. It's just a question of. At the time that it takes people to figure out what the new system looks like and as that information uh, gets distributed into communities and the people who do qualify or who uh, for, for whom the new system would function uh, start to make and those routes start to change and the migration routes start to change. So, those were a bit artificial numbers anyway. So, when you talk about the low of 20,000, that wasn't uh, a, a stable. We've always looked at numbers between 30 and 40,000. Uh, if you look over the past 20 years, those, those have been ballpark, the numbers that you've been looking at. Uh, so, that's a slightly uh, higher number, um, in large part because there's a, a rather unusual situation in the United States right now. I mean, that's. that's uh, um uh, I think that's a fair way of describing what's what's going on in the United States is that it's unprecedented in recent memory, uh, in terms of how things how unpredictable the situation is. And that's I, I think in large part uh what's driving numbers coming up through the United States is when things are unpredictable, uh, people don't feel safe. Uh and they don't feel that they're in uh and That's the current situation. How long that's going to last in the United States, I don't know. Uh, But those are the dynamics that we're seeing at at the border right now. So hopefully that's what you were looking for in terms of explanations. Uh, And I'm happy to answer questions or have a further discussion, but I'll pass it off to Steve because I'm sure he has thoughts on this as well. I'm just going to add, there was one word that, or one phrase or term that Peter
2: threw out, which I'll just elaborate on a little bit, uh, which is another context of our immigration system that's relatively recent, which is electronic travel authorization and so and what uh, you may not be aware of is that since 2015 there's been a change in how foreign nationals from say Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, etc can travel to Canada. So there's two types of foreign nationals uh, in Canadian immigration law those who need visas and those who don't. And people who need visas as Peter mentioned, one of the purposes is to ensure that, uh, they're likely to return to their country by the time that their visa expires. So they're asked a bunch of questions regarding not actually directed whether, not actually whether they there's anything they fear in their country, but how established are they, um, whether they have a criminal background, what ties they have to their country in terms of business and family. And the other type are people who don't have to make such applications in order to travel to Canada. However, since 2015, Uh, everyone who is visa exempt, except Americans, have to complete an electronic travel authorization application. So if a British person, for example, wants to travel to Canada, uh, before they're able to book their flight, the airline website should redirect them, although it doesn't always, which creates some headaches at airports abroad, to the Canadian government's website, where they have to complete an online questionnaire, which isn't a visa application, but it asks similar questions to what you'll find in a visa application, such as, I mean, there's no doc, like, I guess the difference is it's the same questions, but you don't have to provide the documentation, documentary proof that you'd have to in a visa application. And so the Canadian government, you fill out this questionnaire, if you're, you know, British, for example, and 99% of them are approved within a couple of minutes, but now they're able to catch people with, say, criminal records, people who, when they type their purpose for visiting to Canada, certain keywords pop up that trigger delays. Um, And so that's the electronic travel authorization context. Compounding onto that is at the end of this year, uh, the Canadian government actually just announced about a week or two ago that all of those people, again, except Americans and except visitors, will also have to start providing their biometric data. So if... uh, and this actually would encompass Americans too if they're coming to study or work. So if an uh, Australian is coming to go to UBC, in addition to having to apply for a study permit, they'll have to provide, they'll have to have their eyes scanned and give their fingerprints before they're able to enter Canada. Um, and with that just add-on or explanation of that term, electronic travel authorization, I think we can open the floor to any questions that people have.
4: Why can't your policeman from El Salvador, why can't he get in under the humanitarian little gap that you have in the government-sponsored, yeah, would he qualify as under the humanitarian uh, requirements?
3: Sorry, when you say the government-assisted the, the government refugees?
4: Yeah, he said so that there is a category called humanitarian, a humanitarian class.
3: Oh, I mean, there is there is a cat. The humanitarian, um, like the when you're talking about humanitarian applications, a humanitarian application is really just a a request for an exception to the rules. And so you could you can ask for an exception, and this can be a wide range of exceptions that people ask for. So they can be things like. Uh, I need to make $60,000 a year to sponsor my parents. I only make fifty nine. dollars Can you please make an exception for me? At the other extreme, you've got people who might have very serious criminal uh, backgrounds and and, uh, have a a long problematic history of immigration, uh, but they have four kids and a spouse here, and so they're going to be asking for a very significant exemption to the rules. Um, The humanitarian applications, whether you're making them here or... Uh, overseas, they don't even have to look at a humanitarian application. So, in other words, there's if you make your application from uh, El Salvador or something like that, the embassy doesn't even need to give you an answer. They can just not decide the application uh, because the volume otherwise would be overwhelming. Um, once the person's here, uh, the refugee process is generally the way that it will be dealt with because Canada. Doesn't, we just don't, in our law, remove people who are going to face uh, being tortured and killed, except in some very restricted circumstances. I mean, if somebody is particularly dangerous, there is a mechanism in the law to send somebody back, even if they face a certain level of risk. Um, you know, We can have a discussion about that. But essentially, that's the reason why somebody like that would go into the refugee stream uh, rather than uh, some alternative stream.
4: I have a question for Stephen, but before that, uh, we're, are you been successful with your policeman here in Canada since you've taken on his case?
3: Oh, this was a few years ago, and yes, he's been he's he's now Excellent. settled here with Good. his family.
4: Sounds like a worthy person to be a Canadian citizen. <laughs> uh, what is the percent of the uh, in the government planned uh, portfolio? What what is the number for family sponsored, like members of your family? Uh, wives, spouses, things like that. What is that number uh, of your uh, of the government sponsored group?
2: Well, so in 2018, the number targeted is 66,000.
4: 66,000.
2: Well, sorry, that's just for spouses and children. For parents and grandparents, it's an
3: additional 20.
4: Okay, that was my question.
3: Sorry, just to be clear those those are the numbers in the family class. Those are not government sponsored refugees. Oh. So they're like the the family class is uh, for any Canadian who can who would sponsor their spouse or their dependent child and just to add on
2: the uh, humanitarian and compassionate grounds versus refugee context, often if someone's refugee claim is refused, there are further avenues that they have to try to remain in Canada. So if an application is refused, say, due to whether they qualify for a strict convention ground. They can apply for, it's called a pre-removal risk assessment. It's what Peter was referring to and he said there's a second broader category. And then often after that, they can try to make a humanitarian and compassionate application. The Those applications are slow to process. And there's actually an office in Vancouver called the Backlog Reduction Office, which just processes very old humanitarian and compassionate cases. And another reason why someone wouldn't go that route is... Um, simply filing a claim for humanitarian and compassionate protection doesn't prevent immigration authorities from removing someone when that application is in process, whereas they can't be removed during the refugee uh, process. Uh, Hi, thanks for um, the uh, presentation. Uh, Me and my friends were applying for um,
1: permanent residence under the economic thing, express entry. Um, So I'm wondering... Uh, if you're invited to apply, is there any
2: good reason why you would be rejected? So, uh, we already passed like the, uh, the points threshold and yeah, is there any good reason why we, um, someone will get rejected? Okay. So I I can't speak to your application in particular, but, um, Generally, if somebody... So there's a couple things to note about express entry. The first is that uh, at the initial stage of the invitation to apply, it's all attestation-based. The government hasn't yet reviewed any proof. So the first reason why someone might be refused in the economic stream is because it's discovered that either they... uh, deliberately misrepresented what their background was, or they just may not have properly classified themselves. So, for example, and this gets into the real nitty-gritty of economic immigration, someone who is a secretary can apply and qualify for express entry, whereas someone who's an administrative clerk can't. So getting into the specific nuances of whether someone falls under a job is extremely a given job is extremely important in express entry because uh, the nuances of certain occupations can be very extreme. Another common one that arises is if you're a technical wholesaler, you qualify for express entry. If you're non-technical wholesaler, you don't. And so often people at the initial stage may not they may have called themselves secretary when really they're administrative clerk and so on and so forth. The other trend that we've seen across most streams in immigration is uh, the government has a real drive towards processing applications quickly. And the way that they've managed to achieve that in part is by having zero tolerance on any incompleteness in uh, applications. So, literally, if a checkbox in a form was forgotten or someone didn't check the box that they were supposed to they'll return the application several months uh after several months and you have to start over in express entry in its first year i think the bounce rate was something like 30 percent of applications were being returned for being incomplete due to pdfs not being uploaded properly so for example a common one is whenever anyone's applying to immigrate they have to provide police certificates from I mean the standards vary depending on the given year and month but generally for all countries where they've lived for six months or more and in Australia you have to provide an additional traffic document if you're from Victoria State and the amount of Australians who aren't aware of that forget to provide the traffic document on top of the police document results in their application bouncing and they have to start over.
3: Hi, I'm with Atheist Alliance International and every day we receive requests from people 100% in Muslim countries, 90% young males, um, most fearing for their life, most fearing that if they're identified they're going to be imprisoned and a lot of the Muslim countries have um, death as for being an apostate. Um, How can, what are our options or how can we help some of these people to try and get some of them to Canada, most are still living in the country of their residence. They're not, they haven't left to become a refugee. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, this is a very common question that I get from a number of different groups and a number of different organizations. Um, So if the person were in Canada, were to make it into Canada, that would... Uh, likely be a very strong refugee claim, and I've I've had a number of atheists and uh, ap- different variations on apostasy and heresy, and uh, d- depending on the 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 country. Uh, but for example, if you're talking about uh, atheism of somebody who was Muslim and then uh, became an atheist in Iran, for example, the the, the punishment is, is quite severe, and and those are generally very strong claims. In terms of being able to uh, help the person or bring the person to Canada, uh, that can often be challenging. The first step is to get them out of the country. Uh, There's very limited uh, capacity for being able to get documents to get somebody out of the country, Uh, often in, in circumstances where their government won't let them if the government won't let them out, and we see this with, with a number of people, for example, in uh, Xinjiang province in, uh, in China right now, they're just not letting them leave, right? So they're seizing all the passports and people can't even leave the country. That's obviously a challenge on the Chinese side. And, and you will see that with Iran in certain cases if the person's already been targeted as a dissident. Uh, with, with respect to uh, the, the ve- avenues for helping somebody once they're here, if you can't get them a visa or uh, a travel document in some other way, um, assuming that they're not going to, you know, I can't advise people to come here through illegitimate means, although that's often the way that people get here. Uh, that's how family members uh, and, and certain organizations will uh, will assist people in terms of getting, to, uh, getting either out of the country so that at that point, you can make a claim. Uh, for example, if you were able to get out of Iran and into uh, some other country where you could approach the UNHCR office or where you could uh, approach the Canadian embassy and maybe make uh, either, for example, a G5 sponsorship or if your organization were to become a private sponsorship, like a private, uh, like a sponsorship agreement holder. So essentially, what uh, there's a, a set of criteria for an NGO an organization to become what's called a sponsorship agreement holder uh, with the government, and so I, I don't know if your, your organization already is an uh, an SAH, uh, sorry, a sponsorship agreement holder or not, but that might be something to consider uh, because it does facilitate. Uh, it's easier for a sponsorship agreement holder. To be able to bring uh, the criteria are less strict for sponsorship agreement holders than for G5s. So, for groups of five, the criteria are a little bit more strict in terms of the ability to bring people in than for sponsorship agreement holders. Uh, Sponsorship agreement holders will get essentially a certain quota. Uh, of people that they can sponsor at any given time, uh, of applications that they can have running, or people that they can bring in at any given time, depending on the resources and size of the of the sponsorship agreement holder in question. Um, some of them are very large organizations. Some of them are quite small, right? So you, it, it really depends on the circumstances. Uh, in terms of of strategies, uh, what I would recommend is talking to some of the other organizations. And don't limit yourself to organizations that are in the same situation uh, or that are dealing with the same profile of claimants that you are or people. uh, I would talk to, for example, um, uh, Rainbow Refugee, for example. They deal with this situation with LGBT individuals all over the world. So they'll get calls from people in Uganda. They'll get calls from people in different parts of the world and end up facing the same situation, right? So some of the uh, religious organizations, and, and obviously there's whether, whether or not that's a good fit, but from the, uh, from the perspective of how to get somebody out of the country and get through the process, the situation for an atheist in Iran is no different from the situation of a Christian, an evangelical Christian in Iran. Uh, they face the same challenges in terms of making it to Canada. And I would actually talk to some of those groups. Often, the sponsorship agreement holders will work with certain profiles of people in certain countries. And so, uh, for example, you'll have a church that works with uh, specifically Ethiopia because they have missions in Ethiopia or they have a historical connection to Ethiopia for some reason, um, and they will have a good. Understanding of how to get somebody out of Ethiopia, and how to get somebody out if that's the country you're dealing with, and so often um, it's you know oddly enough the best way to get an atheist out of Ethiopia is to approach a church group. Uh, the um, as as odd as that might sound, so those would be the things from a practical perspective. I would talk to the other people who've. Uh, um, the other organizations and people who are doing similar work uh, because this is a very common challenge. Uh, Canada's very good at interdiction. We ge- We have ext- uh, uh, extraordinary geographical advantages. There's massive oceans that are hard to get across, and the ETAs are extremely effective in the sense that it's very easy. you know, uh, Steve says you can get an ETA within uh, within a few minutes if you're from the UK or France, try getting an ETA in, in a few minutes if you're from Ethiopia or Afghanistan, and I'll tell you that that's unlikely to... Uh, they're going to need visas anyway. So those people are going to need to apply for visas uh, and are going to need to go through the process of applying for visas. You're not going to be eligible for an ETA. Um, like that, that process just doesn't apply. And the chances of if you say... I'm at risk in my home country and would like a visa to come to Canada to visit my friends who are going to save me, uh, the answer to that visa is going to be no, right? So through legitimate means, uh, if you're not outside the country of, uh, of persecution, it's very, very challenging. And even when you are outside the country of persecution, the process is very lengthy, and you need to be prepared for a long. Uh, you need to set people up somewhere else and plan to have them there and support them for years, possibly while the processing happens. Uh, it's a very, very slow process from overseas. What I would strongly recommend is uh, a consultation with Steve, because my clients, my clients are not. Uh, uh, I deal with people that the government doesn't want, right? Steve deals with people who the government does want, and they get processed. Like, if you can get it in the express, if you can get an ITA, uh, like an, an invitation to apply in the express entry system, your your person will be here in probably within three or four months. Hey. So that was a very long answer. I would... a good answer but... Well,
2: I just wanted to touch, because somebody had earlier uh, asked why someone would need to provide a traffic um, record. And the reason is uh, because Canada is very strict on... DUIs. So we haven't really touched yet on what would make someone criminally inadmissible to Canada, but if somebody has committed an offense or has been convicted of an offense overseas, that equates to a hybrid offense, so that's one that can be prosecuted by way of summary or indictment, that makes them inadmissible to Canada. So anyone with a DUI overseas, which is in some cases recorded not in that country's criminal system, but in their traffic reports... Uh, makes the person inadmissible to Canada. Canada, I think, is actually notoriously strict on DUIs relative to other countries because we meet people who are able to travel the world quite freely who have, uh, say, a misdemeanor DUI in the States and it becomes an issue entering Canada. And it's actually about to become a... Now, there's ways around this, but a lifetime ban on entering Canada as a result of the uh, reforms to Canada's drinking under the or driving under the influence legislation that's running concurrent with the new marijuana the cannabis legislation will classify any DUI as something called serious criminality in Canada and so that's why they want to see the uh, the traffic reports
5: a couple of questions uh, number one uh, I used to live in Toronto uh, years ago and uh, I still have contacts there and they're telling me and I saw it on, when I was there that um, Canada's allowing um, people to um, bring in their uh, up to four wives if they're uh, Islamic and they say it's their religious right. Um, and we have, this is not the only place this happens. Philadelphia is notorious. It's got a huge hive of uh, polygamists living there. We've got experience in Canada with polygamous cults. Uh, we know that polygamy is not a positive thing. So I'm wondering if uh, you could tell me, uh, what's the state of that? Is, is, am I going on a false rumor here? Is it complete bogus, or is this, is this happening in small numbers? That's the first question. The second question is this. Australia does this. They have uh, at all their consulate generals and all their embassies around the world, they do psychological testing, not just straightforward questioning, but they do psychological uh, testing to determine if you are a violent person or if you are a zealot of some form. And Not just looking at criminal record, which can be in a corrupt country, you can buy a criminal record from a police station. It shows that you're clean. Uh, psychological testing bypasses that and, and helps to determine if you really are of a violent nature or a, a zealot of some sort. I'm, I'm wondering, if do, do we have that in our embassies and consulate generals overseas currently, or is that in the works? Uh, how is that uh, going through? Is, is that happening at all? Thank you.
3: So with respect to the first, uh, the first question, no, polygamy is not uh, recognized. Uh, you can't sponsor more than one spouse. Uh, in fact, it, it, practicing polygamy in Canada is going to be a problem. This is going through the courts right now in terms of challenges to the new law, but there was uh, the, the question around uh, polygamy and whether or not you can bring more than one wife uh, and when you are practicing polygamy is obviously an issue in Canadian immigration law. Often where we see the situation uh, in particular is, is particularly prog- problematic will be in situations of bigamy, um where we will see people, found criminally inadmissible, or the second marriage won't be recognized. So there are some countries that don't have divorce. So for example, the Philippines is a very common situation where you'll have people can't get divorced and then will get married again anyways, uh, and the second marriage will not be recognized. So in fact, they're not a spouse in Canadian immigration law because the second marriage is illegal uh, and may well be criminal So the, uh, under Canadian law. So the the question of not declaring a previous marriage can in fact be very problematic. Where the rumors that you're talking about and and the the cases there there were hearings on these the, this polygamy issue uh, when they the previous government passed the uh, what was it called the uh, barbaric cultural practices act what is it prevents something barbaric cultural practices act the um, and the testimony that was given. Uh, during those hearings, there was some testimony about people practicing polygamy or bringing people in. But usually what happens through the immigration system is that the the second or third wife will be brought in through some fraudulent means. In other words, usually they'll be brought in as a cousin or as a sister or as a, a domestic worker or an employee. Or They're not brought in openly as a spouse. So do people do it? Yes. Does the immigration system system allow it no and usually there's been some misrepresentation through the process that if it comes to light would allow for the the loss of status at the very least of the person who was sponsored, but possibly also of the sponsor themselves, depending on what their immigration status was. So if it was a permanent resident, a permanent resident who misrepresents to bring in uh, somebody, like if I'm a permanent resident and I uh, engage in misrepresentation to bring somebody in to sponsor somebody, I can not only, will they lose their status, I can also lose my status. Now as a Canadian citizen, uh, obviously, I can't lose my status as, as a citizen, but I can be charged criminally for the, for the misrepresentation. Um, your second question about psychological testing, I mean, the, there's a lot of discussion around security screening uh, and the mechanisms for security screening in different countries and which ones are effective and which ones are not. Uh, do we do psychological tests uh, of people who are coming in? Not per se, uh, there are a number of different ways that people are screened and at different levels, depending on the profiles of, of the people who are coming in and where they're coming from. But a lot of the security screening will be done by CSIS in ways that I'm not privy to. In other words, we, they don't get disclosed even to, to as an immigration lawyer uh, when I'm dealing with all that we get with, with respect to CSIS is they've given advice one way or the other. Right, and so you don't know what CSIS is doing in the background. They will do interviewing, uh, and you can take that up with CSIS if you want to try and understand what it is that they're doing. Uh, They a lot of that security screening is not um, public in terms of the criteria that they're using uh, or how they're going about doing it. Um, What we do know is that the the ones there's certain profiles that we just expect will take a lot longer. If you're a military-aged male from Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, chances are your security screening is going to take a lot longer than if you're a 95-year-old woman or if you're uh, a five-year-old kid, right? So there's there's a certain amount of profile differences that go in, into security screening. Uh, in terms of what CSIS is actually doing, uh, that's a good question.
4: CISA doesn't use psychological testing, are you, Darwin? doesn't use psychological testing they use uh, question and answers lifestyle movement job algorithms so they end up being able to predict criminal behavior off of questions on just that that are not psychological in nature but have to do with your lifestyle and those have all been done through predictive analytics
0: you mentioned the delays uh, on refugee claims overseas and we're dealing with that because as a organization as the BC Human Association, we took out a community sponsorship, the other way to be a sponsor before I think you can become an SAH. And we're dealing with trying to bring a Syrian refugee family over and we're still still waiting on that as you do. Uh, But I wanted to ask about delays in Canada. So one of the things that's come up in the news with people who have claims or appeals or they overstay their welcome and they get picked up by immigration are they're being put into either camps or some of the stories are about them going into the prison system. Could you talk a bit about that or if I'm way off
3: base? So, I mean, in in terms of the, uh, the camps or the prison system, I mean, the, the delays, uh, are a significant issue. I mean, they're a significant issue both for, uh, strong claims and for weak claims and, and for, you know, I deal with clients who have very, very strong claims. Um, but, often it's only one family member who makes it here. And there's, it's extremely stressful and uh, damaging to a family when you're dealing with somebody who's here making a refugee claim. They're waiting 20, we're looking at 20 months or more for a refugee claim to be processed. If you're separated from your spouse and children, 20 months is a really long time and that's just for your claim to be processed it's then going to be another 20 months before your uh, your spouse and child are going to be here uh, which uh, you know so you're looking at three to four years uh, that you're going to be separated from your your family because of the processing times on the permanent res- on the, the claim and the, and the, the permanent residence application It becomes a problem for weak claims as well because it it creates an incentive uh, for people who have weak claims to come. You get a work permit. You can stay here for two for a couple of years, uh, and that's that can create a significant problem within the refugee system as well. And so it's in the interest across the board for us to have a fast, fair, efficient system, right? So to like where you you actually have good decision making in a in a uh and that there are challenges to that there's been under resourcing at the board there are other challenges within the system that we can talk about we could spend a whole day talking just about those and I do spend entire days talking about those with various policy people at different points uh, you know over the past 10 years but in terms of uh, the processing when you're talking about where people are during that time, uh, yes, the camps, there, there are no camps, so to speak. That's really for people who have just arrived. You'll see that when there, there's large arrivals uh, from Montreal or from, like in, in Montreal, we saw that recently where they were setting, that's for the initial processing. Uh, that's not 20 months. That's going to be, you know, just a, in the first few days as you're as they're trying to do the paperwork and, and do initial security clearing and things like that. If there are any reasons to think that, that there needs to be a more in-depth security investigation or there's any uh, other issues issues around someone being a flight risk. In other words, they're not even going to show up for their refugee hearing, uh, or they, they pose some danger to the public. Or the other situation we often see at the front end of the refugee system is if the person can't be identified. In other words, we don't even know who you are, uh, and obviously that creates challenges for security screening and other, uh, is that you will see detention at the front end. So usually identity detention will not go on for that long. You'll usually see that for the first few weeks or, or maybe a couple of months uh, in, in most cases. Um, other situations, you might see detentions for much lengthier periods of time, Uh those detentions in Ontario and Quebec happen in dedicated immigration detention centers um, for the most most of the detainees so in other words you're you're non-dangerous detainees will be detained in an immigration detention center. Those detention centers don't exist in the rest of the country. So here, all of our immigration detainees, aside from very short detentions at the airport, so we have a, cent- a center at the airport, but there you don't stay there more than 48 hours. Uh, as soon as you get transferred into a detention detention that's longer than 48 hours, it's in a provincial jail because the the, the there is no... Other detention center. They are in the process of building one in Surrey that would be a dedicated immigration immigration detention center uh, in um, uh, for British Columbia. Uh, So that would be the third the third one in the country, Uh, and I I can talk in more detail about why provincial jails are not an appropriate place to be detaining people. But I'll leave that open to questions if people want more, because I know other people have questions. Another neat little uh, tidbit just on detention that not a lot of
2: people are aware to is that there's a short term, and by short term, I mean under a day, detention facility at the Vancouver Public Library downtown. Uh, if you know there's the Coliseum shape and then the tower next to it, all of the uh, I think all of the refugee hearings in the city are done out of that building on either the 14th or the 15th floor, 18th. and then all the appeals are done there, and then the seventh floor is actually a short-term uh, holding facility, both for people who have hearings that day and then people who've been detained because they've been caught, for example. Well, they just have some sort of an immigration issue that they've been picked up and they'll be brought to the seventh floor of the uh, Vancouver Public Library. Okay, so
6: uh, being an immigrant myself, I've been uh, familiar with uh, reasons why people want to come to Canada. and. Uh, There are a variety of reasons, uh, some of them being economic, uh, some of them being uh, wanting to live in a country that is a democratic country, uh, has uh, freedom to be uh, any religion or no religion you you want, to be gay, etc. Women's rights and so on, but there is a large portion of uh, immigrants that are um, don't agree with these values. Exact, uh, in, in fact, they are completely opposed to these values. That's had been my experience. Uh, that they come here for economic reasons. I'm not talking about re- refugees, just people that apply for immigration, uh, and they completely disagree with uh, the the you know gay rights, women's rights, democratic rights. But you know they come here in spite of those rights in order to. Uh, improve their economic situation and uh, often when the country where they come from um, there that's it, the situation there improves economically they they after 20 30 years they go back there um, and I'm I was thinking generally about refugees and non-refugees for, for example the case of Syrian um, refugees and immigrants the Gulf countries have been accused of not um, accepting refugees from Syria, and some of them are very wealthy countries. Uh, On the other hand, I've read that they indicate that they don't have a refugee status per se, but they do accept immigration from Syria uh, under other categories. Um, Finally, I uh, read from a human rights organization that did surveys in the uh, Jordanian and uh, Uh, Turkish uh, but mostly more Jordanian refugee camps where they asked the the Syrians where they wanted to settle and they would say, most of them said that ideally they would like to settle in a country that shares their uh, culture language and religion. That will be their ideal if they cannot settle back in Syria. Uh, Finally, before asking my question, um, in (laughs) In the Netherlands, they have a system where um, um, they show these videos of the life in the Netherlands where they show gay couples, uh, people bathing in the nude or topless and so on to prospective immigrants to make sure they understand. And this happened after you know some violent events in the ne- Netherlands to make sure they understand the kind of lifestyle they can expect in, in the Netherlands and to discourage people. That don't agree don't agree with their culture, so how feasible it is to have something like that in Canada, to bring people that are uh, willing and, and and ready to accept, uh, you know, freedom of speech, democracy, women's rights, gay rights, and try to prevent people that completely disagree with those values uh, to come into
3: Canada. Okay, so uh, I mean the the short the short version is is that there's a long history of thinking about integration and uh, multiculturalism in Canada and and there's a lot of different um, uh, theories and approaches and discussions around that that's an ongoing discussion in terms of uh, in terms of how that integration happens into Canadian society um, most of the the studies and a lot of the focus will be on the second generation. In the sense that what you'll find is uh, that the integration matters. The, the 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 initial integration is important and it's very crucial. But where Canada's has been extremely successful in the past has been in the integration of the second generation. Is that you don't see the ta- the same types of ghettoization and and separation. And we are there are some concerns around that right now. But uh, um, in in some in some urban centers and there's ongoing discussions around that. But generally speaking, that's where, uh, anyway, I, we could talk about that for uh, a very, quite a long time, but, uh, yes, it's an ongoing challenge and it's something that's, that's part of discussion within, uh, immigration policy, uh, finding people from other countries that share the exact same values as Canadians and that are Canadians essentially, uh, from overseas. Um, they're, there aren't that many places that are where people are Canadians. Um, you know, I'm, I'm my family's Swiss, and on the standards that you're talking about, most Swiss wouldn't qualify. Uh, if you're talking about people who are not, uh, who, who don't hold pre- certain prejudices or don't hold, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely certain things in Switzerland where the attitudes towards minorities and other groups might be different than the ones in Canada. Uh, so... Uh, trying to find the profiles of people who would, who would meet those criteria would be quite challenging. And just to
2: add in terms of where immigrants are coming from at least in the largest categories which are the family reunification stream and economic immigration with the family stream there's at least the hope that the fact that somebody has entered into a relationship with a Canadian would mean that Canadian values are imparted. In the economic stream Uh, As Peter was saying, second generation tends to be much more reflective of Canadian values. The big push on in the ranking systems, the younger someone is, they get a lot more points. And uh, one of the more recent changes brought in by the conservatives and continued under the uh, liberals is there's a big push to get international students uh, to come to school here, transition to uh, temporary resident and then permanent resident. And with that push, there's a, just young people tend to be more just to call it socially liberal um, and they've already established themselves a little bit in Canada and adopted those values. That's not to say there aren't challenges. Obviously, I think in the brief bit that I've been following the Ontario election, it sounds like uh, immigrant reactions to sex education in public schools might lead to Doug Ford becoming premier. So there are uh, there are live issues, and it's something that is continually being worked at. But the situation's different from, say, Europe,
3: for example. And just uh, sorry, just one last comment: that even if you had Steve and I, if you sat Steve and I down in a room and forced us to come up with a list of the values, we'd be in the room for a long time, <laughs> and that's just the two of us. But try and come up with a list of values; we could be here for the rest of the day.
1: Yeah, a comment. Uh, you mentioned the uh, misclassification on the economic refugees. Uh, if they use the national occupation classification and they have to look it up themselves, I don't doubt they make mistakes because I've used it and I have a hell of a time finding stuff in there. A um, couple quick, another thing is, yeah, we're still fighting what is Canadian culture, so uh, it's a. how could we ever do that? And uh, my questions are, you mentioned marriage. Do we recognize common law relations in any immigration law? And the second thing, which is may or may not be immigration or your area, but what about these people who came to Canada as kids because they changed the rules, they lost their citizenship, and they've been kind of people have walked up to them and said, Well, you're not a Canadian, but I've lived here since I was three when my parents came from England or something. I believe they used the comment, lost Canadians, but.
3: So the short answer is yes. Common law. Common law is defined in the immigration uh, in the Immigration Refugee Protection Act as living together in a conjugal relationship for twelve months or more. Uh, so there's a clear definition of it. There's also another category called conjugal partners. They're people who um, are in a genuine. Uh, committed relationship, but for reasons beyond their control, are unable to get married or live common law. A good example would be a gay couple in Iran. They can't live together in a conjugal relationship, and they can't get married. Um, The uh, Sorry, what was the second... Lost Canadians. So in terms of citizenship, um, yes, there has been a lot of discussion around what's colloquially referred to as lost Canadians. Um, the, the The scope of who is, qualifies as a Canadian uh, is obviously a political question and a political issue uh, in terms of how much do you expand or contract that category Uh, for example around the first or second generation born abroad right now we do not recognize the second generation born abroad Uh, other countries do will recognize multiple generations born abroad Uh, it depends on uh, a lot of factors as to who your parents were when they became Canadian when you were born what you were so you actually to do citizenship law and Erin Roth in our office, who's, who specializes in this stuff, she has copies of all of the acts since 1947, and then she sits there and calculates the, uh, so yes, it's a mess, and it requires this, this kind of big flow chart to try and figure out if you are or are not a Canadian, uh, and there are people who fall through the cracks.
1: Uh, All right. uh, We've been following on the Internet and on TV the pregnant lady uh, from Honduras with her two little kids, uh, two years old and six years old. uh, And they've arrived at Tijuana in the caravan. The United States has specific ways of dealing with that. But uh, what's going to happen there this time? And is there any chance, if they're rejected this time, would Canada step in?
3: Whether Canada will step in or not, uh, Canada rarely steps in. Uh, if you're talking about government assisted uh, like if they were going to go in and do government assisted refugees, um, Canada is highly unlikely to step in. We are going to step in about uh, let me see what did we say five 7,500 times out of 60 million so you can do the math as to the chances and those uh, so the chances that they're going to step in are whatever I'll, I'll leave it to the mathematicians not good. Uh, with respect to the chances, uh, if the person were to come to Canada, that would be a different situation because then they would have the right to make a refugee claim. So if they were to get across the border and then come up to Canada to make a refugee claim, then they would be eligible to make a refugee claim, uh, if they didn't come to a port of entry. In other words, you have to walk across the park.
2: Just to add on that, on whether they could come to Canada, of course they would need a visa, and so one of the uh, Canada's part of what's called the Five Country Conference which is Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, England and they share all information on immigration. So if this caravan did approach the United States and this person did get denied entry to the United States, Canada would immediately know that as soon as that person applied for a visa and the odds of that being visa being granted plummet to something infinitely small.
1: Peter, Steve, this has been terrific. We're out of time, I'm afraid. We've learned a ton. Thank you so much.